0: Well, good morning. I'm excited about this morning's study, and I trust that you will be as well. This morning, we're looking at Acts 17, verses 1 through 15. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, it happens to be the text from which we got the title for this series, Turning the World Upside Down. So I got the privilege of introducing why that particular title was chosen for this series of messages. Uh, As is our custom, again, I don't expect you to be able to read this. But I always like to look at a passage as a whole and get an idea of its structure and flow of thought. And like most narrative, this is marked by movement. We're going to see that the first part takes place in Thessalonica, the second part takes place in Berea. Also, it'll come as no surprise that when we read through the passage, the primary emphasis is on evangelism, sharing the gospel with the lost. We've seen that in practically every chapter we've looked at. So as I looked for what makes this unit unique, there is an emphasis on the use of Scripture in evangelism. Notice that twice, by virtue of repetition, the focus is on handling the Word of God as we share our faith with others. There are other verbs, but the repetition is significant. So that... In evangelism, we accurately reason from Scripture with a view to reaching sinners, convincing people to trust in the gospel. Also, we notice the repetition of the stirring up the crowd, exactly same phrase, which indicates that while this is going on, you and I can anticipate that there will be those who seek to oppose and resist the spread of the gospel. So... The main idea of our passage is, is in evangelism, we reason from the scriptures with a view to sharing the gospel with those who are lost amid resistance and antagonism. So let's begin by looking at Paul's ministry in Thessalonica, Acts chapter 17, beginning reading in verse 1. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. So notice that the text opens by Paul and Silas leaving Philippi, which is where they were last week taking the Roman road that led to Thessalonica. That trip would have been about 100 miles long. And they settle for what will be three months in Thessalonica, capital of the province of Macedonia. As you can see from this modern-day picture, the location of a major harbor and a center for commerce. We see that Paul begins, as was his custom, by ministering in the synagogue for three consecutive Sabbaths. He will then minister outside of the synagogue for, as I said, about three months, during which time he will support himself by tent making. We don't know that from Acts, but in his epistle to 1st his first epistle to Thessalonians in chapter 2 and second Thessalonians chapter 3 were told that so as to not be a burden upon the church, he actually engaged in tent making to pay his own expenses twice during that three months period. He would also receive financial support from the church at Philippi. So having arrived in Thessalonica, we read... Four key verbs describing his ministry. For three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. That's why this particular text is focused on the ministry of the word in the context of evangelism. And what we're going to do is four word studies to try to dig deep into what it was Paul was doing as he was seeking to win the lost of faith. The first is that Paul reasoned from the scriptures. Now, if you do a word study on the term reason, it basically means that Paul would take specific Old Testament passages and exposit them. He would interpret and explain them to his audience. That explanation invited conversation from the audience about the text. They were free to ask questions, they were free to debate and dialogue upon his interpretation. But in the process, Paul would very carefully correct misinterpretations and seek to lead his audience to a conclusive interpretation of the text. The key here is getting a hold of the fact that each passage of Scripture only has one authoritative interpretation. Many applications, but only one interpretation. And therefore, when we reason from the text, we're carefully studying the message of the passage so as to discover that meaning, to discover what it is that the text is saying. Now, unfortunately, Acts 17 doesn't tell us which scriptures or what this looked like. But if you're like me, you'd love to know what happened in the synagogues, and by God's grace, We have an example in Acts 13. This was actually covered by Pastor Michael back in February. So I'm going to assume that maybe uh, you're uh, not as fresh with regard to this passage. And we're going to go back just for a moment to get a glimpse of what reasoning from the Scripture looks like. In that sermon, he cites three Old Testament passages. So these must have been among his arsenal of texts that he would have explained to the Thessalonians. I want to particularly focus on Psalm 1610 because this one he actually does some exposition of. Notice we read, as for the fact that God raised Jesus up from the dead no longer to return to decay, he was spoken in this way, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Now, if we'd been sitting in the synagogue listening to Paul, I assume that we would have heard an exposition something like this. Notice it begins by taking an Old Testament passage. In this case, he's expositing Psalm 16.10. Psalm 16 was written by David, and yet Paul is emphasizing that while David wrote this psalm, this was not written about David, but David was enabled to write a prophecy with regard to the future uh, and with regard to the Messiah. Notice he reasons that David died and Uh, was buried, and his body is seen decay. Interestingly enough, Peter will use the same passage and make the same point in Acts 2, verse 37. He then says that he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Now, I had a second agenda for using this, is that as we anticipate Easter, notice that what Paul is in essence saying is that David was enabled to write a prophecy that was strictly messianic, a verse that had nothing to do about David, but rather about his greater son, the Messiah. And David was enabled a thousand years before the event to predict that the Messiah would not undergo decay, anticipating his bodily resurrection three days after his crucifixion. Notice he concludes by saying, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That's the point. And we're going to see this in another verb here in a couple moments. One of the powerful evidences of the truth of the gospel is the fulfillment of prophecy. And therefore, what he's saying is, we can proclaim the gospel because God anticipated that the Messiah would die in our place for our sins and rise again from the dead. So that notice that what Paul is basically saying is that when you use Scripture and evangelism, there is one valid interpretation that needs to be explained in the process of sharing our faith. Now that meaning, that interpretation may not be easy, it may not be automatic, and that's why you and I are called to be careful students of the Word. But when we discover that meaning, when we grasp what the text is teaching, that's what we communicate to the lost, our authority being the Word of God itself. I couldn't help but share this cartoon. Perhaps you can appreciate uh, this kind of Bible study. Perhaps you've been in one where everybody was invited to share what this verse means to them. Uh, I've been in on more than one of those. And if you listen carefully, you begin to discover that when left open to personal opinion, you can come up with mutually contradictory and exclusive interpretations. That's not how the Word of God should be handled. The Word of God needs to be clearly handled accurately, and a teacher needs to help those gathered before him understand the one accurate interpretation of the text so that evangelism not only shares that meaning, but it corrects error. That's inherent in the word reasoning too. When a Jehovah's Witness translates John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was a God, you throw your yellow flag and say, problem here, that's not the accurate interpretation of that text. And you roll up your sleeves and demonstrate on the basis of the context, the grammar, that, that that should be translated that the word, Jesus Christ, is fully and completely God. Okay, any questions or comments on this first aspect of using the Scripture in evangelism? Okay, notice the second verb is that Paul not only reasoned, but he explained. Not a whole lot of additional meaning uh, if you do a lexical study, but it does emphasize the fact that each passage should be clearly understood. The words of the text accurately communicate and convey their meaning. As I look around this room, I can't help but think that a number of you are involved in teaching the Word of God. Some of you are parents and grandparents who are teaching children and grandchildren. Some of you teach Sunday school at a variety of different levels. And the challenge here is to realize that as iron sharpens iron, we can never be too clear when explaining the Scriptures. We can never be too careful to make sure that our audience is grasping accurately what it is we're saying. I spent a number of years in the pastorate and in teaching, and on occasion I would ask, what did you hear me say or summarize our lesson so far? And sometimes I would get a response that still makes my skin crawl, okay? (laughs) I mean, it's amazing to me sometimes that despite my best efforts to be transparently clear— that the child I'm talking to, the college student I'm talking to, the adults I'm talking to, hear something very different. That's where reasoning involving conversation is so important, to make sure that the message is being grasped, that it's being understood, and that the person with whom you're sharing your faith is uh, following you, tracking with you, in an accurate way. Any comments or observations on that? Okay. The third verb is that he gave evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Now, this has the idea of proof. And yes, we can prove the gospel through something that God has provided for us in his Word. And that's evidence that is found in the Scriptures. Now, notice that Paul is sharing the Word with Jews with a view to convincing them that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. Gentiles will also hear the message And therefore, what Paul is trying to provide is credible evidence from the Word of God that will convince both his Jewish audience and his Gentiles that Jesus is the Christ, that he died in our place for our sins and rose again. Of course, we live in a world where you could add several other paths that people may be struggling with. And in each case... We have a weapon that is powerful unto God in the scriptures. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. God tells his people how they can know that he is the true and living God. Notice he says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. A uh, claim to exclusivity. There is one true and living God. How do you know that? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. The true and living God can predict the future before it happens. So that prophecy is that element of Scripture where God tells us what's going to happen hundreds of years before the event, with sufficient clarity that when it happens, we see a correspondence. Psalm 1610 is an example of that. A thousand years before the resurrection, God anticipates the resurrection of Christ. And of course, uh, who can think of another Messianic prophecy? Uh, Let's stick with this week from Palm Sunday to Easter. Let's have some prophecies that were made and fulfilled during this week in the first coming of our Lord. Anybody think of one? Zechariah 9 9. What does it predict? Writing in, in a cult. There's number one. What's another one? Uh, rebuild the temple in three days. Rebuild the temple in three days, referring to his body. What else? That one was actually given by our Lord by his own, uh, within his own lifetime. Excellent illustration. Any other ones? What's going to happen tomorrow when Christ is on the cross? Who can think of some things that happened on the cross that were anticipated in the Old Testament? Gambling over his clothes, clothes, Psalm 22. As a matter of fact, if you want an interesting study, read through Psalm 22 sometime between now and tomorrow and look at the number of parallels. His hands and feet will be pierced, written by David hundreds of years, before crucifixion was even a form of capital punishment. It was the Medo-Persians who devised crucifixion. That wouldn't come on the scene for four to five hundred years after that prophecy was written. So again, notice that if 48 prophecies were fulfilled by one person, the odds would be 10 to the 157th power. Jesus, in his first coming, fulfills over a hundred. Let that sink in. This is not random chance. This is not personal opinion. God has given us a wealth of evidence. As you read through the gospel narratives concerning the death of Christ, every time you see the Old Testament cited, the reason the divinely inspired author is doing that is to build confidence in the text so that The Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would die and rise again from the dead. Whoops. Jesus died and rose again from the dead. Therefore, very simple syllogism, what's the conclusion? Jesus is the Messiah. That's the point. So as you read the narrative of Scripture, as you study the Scriptures, the Old Testament can be used to help dismiss all other options and realize that the true and living God has clearly established the path of faith. That it's belief in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, God's Son, in his substitutionary death and bodily resurrection that one is saved from their sins. So that we can have full assurance concerning the truth of the gospel. And if nothing else this morning, I hope as men who are encouraging each other in a world that is very pluralistic, that very much wants you to believe that religion is a matter of personal opinion, that you can choose a religion based on personal preferences, that there is objective truth, And the reality, the truthfulness of the gospel is is well established by prophetic scripture. So that Paul will write to the Thessalonians, this church, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We don't have to wonder, we can know with assurance that that, that, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, any comments on that? And again, as you read through the biblical narratives, the Old Testament quotes take on more significance in the sense that they are divinely inspired of God to help us see the connectedness and the validity of the faith that we embrace. Okay, the fourth verb is the word proclaiming. This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now, this is the sobering word in the mix because if you do a word study on proclaiming, it basically means we are messengers who convey a message given to us by God. And that's the awesome thing. I don't know if you've ever come to grips with this, whether you're teaching your own kids, teaching a Sunday school class, but this is God's Word, and to teach it, to communicate it, means we need to get it right. We need to be very careful that we are accurately conveying the truth of this message, because that's what God has asked us to do. He's entrusted us with His Word as messengers who are communicating from Him. I mean, if time permitted, it would be fun to do whisper down the lane. You know how it works. You, you tell someone a message at one end, and by the time it gets to the other end, it's a totally different message. And unfortunately, there are people out there who call themselves Christians who are proclaiming a message that is very different than the one that is found in this book. That is shameful for anybody who names the name of Christ. We are people... Called upon to proclaim the excellencies of his grace. Secondly, it means that we represent the one who sent us. That should give us boldness and encouragement in evangelism. This isn't my opinion. This isn't my message. This is a message from God that I am sharing with other people. And therefore, it's not my reputation that's at stake. I've been called to share my faith, and the message that I'm sharing is sourced in God himself. And as a result, we summon people to pay attention. This is important stuff. This is not just another news story among many opinions of what's happening in the world. This is something of utmost importance because the eternal destiny of every man, woman, and child rests upon their response to this particular message. So that notice that in an economy of words, really one verse, we begin to see the centrality of the scriptures in evangelism. That when we share our faith, while personal testimonies and stories and illustrations are important, this is where the power lies. This is where the, um, the ability to persuade the lost rests. And therefore, we need to be thoroughly acquainted, conversant, and focused on communicating the Scriptures. And of course, the message is conveyed exactly because God's Word is authoritative. And when conveyed exactly, the gospel is powerful in its ability to convict and to change the sinner. So that it's important that we not add, we not subtract, but rather we we share the Word of God in all of its power with those who need to hear. And of course, the content is that Jesus Christ, God's Son, died in our place for our sins and rose again. The Summary form in this passage is that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. The more expanded version is in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Okay, any questions, comments? And that's why even if you're in the custom of using tracts, distributing tracts in your evangelistic approach... Read through it and make sure that the scriptures are prominent and accurately handled. Uh, I was given that assignment once as a high schooler, and I went through the track rack in our church and went to the pastor and said, you know, we could realistically throw out half of these. Uh, And it, it grieves me to say that. But there were some that didn't have any Scripture. There were some that didn't use Scripture correctly. If you're going to use a tract, pick a good one and stick with it, okay? Uh, Find one that states the gospel clearly and accurately, and then use that means to share your faith. Now, notice that the aim is to win the loss, and that's indeed what happens. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So that there was a response. Again, the power was not in Paul. Paul himself said he wasn't eloquent. The power is in the Word of God. But they were persuaded, a word that means, first of all, they understood the gospel message. There's always content involved in saving faith. Secondly, They were convicted that it is true, and that is a work of the Holy Spirit in the mind and heart of the unsaved, and they consented with the will to the truth. They placed their personal trust in the gospel, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Notice that the text also says they joined Paul and Silas. The word means began a permanent association. Obviously, Paul and Silas left after three months, and therefore that permanent association then linked them to the local church. And I think it's important for those of us committed to evangelism that we work equally hard to plug new believers into a solid local body of believers so that in evangelism we announce the gospel With the aim of persuading people to trust in Christ, that's the aim, and associating with the church where they can be fed, where they can grow, where they can ultimately uh, be baptized in obedience to our Lord's command, and then begin to mature in their faith in Christ. Now, any questions or comments on that? All right, sadly, not everybody is happy with the progress of the gospel. Notice in verse 5, but the Jews becoming jealous so that there were some who were incensed at the response. They were envious and resentful, and that resentment evoked a sense of hostility. And so they incite a riot to try to put a halt to the spread of the gospel. Notice what the text says. Uh, and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities. So basically, they stir a riot that goes to the house that is owned by a man that named Jason, most likely a convert of Paul, someone who had trusted in the gospel. And unfortunately for them, they did not find Paul and Silas in the house at the time. So they seized Jason and some of the other believers and dragged them before the city authorities. Now, the, Thessalonian, uh, the Thessalonica was governed by five politarchs or five uh, rulers, and so they would have brought them before those rulers. Notice again, and if, you, if you're around my teaching very long, you know I love word studies, but this was kind of a fun one. If you look at the phrase wicked men, notice how the different versions of the Bible translate it, lewd fellows of a baser sort. Don't you love that translation? Anyway. <laughs> worthless men from the rabble, bad characters, troublemakers, lowlife, bums. Uh, You get the idea of the kind of people that the Jews succeeded in getting to join their cause. And it serves as a sobering warning. Sorry, the button to go blank is right next to the advance. That there will always be some who delight in doing evil. These bums, troublemakers, lowlife, seize the opportunity to riot. That was fun for them in the effort to suppress the truth and create trouble. So that, that serves as a sobering warning to all of us that There will always be those who delight in stifling the spread of the gospel. Beware, be on the alert, be on the lookout. In this case, they succeed in stirring up a riot. And notice the charge in verse 7. I'm sorry, the end of verse 6. These men who have upset the world have come here also. There it is. Turning the world upside down, that's the actual translation in the King James and uh, the um, uh, ESV. That basically, the gospel had turned their world upside down. The phrase literally denotes um, to disturb their stability, to cause people to reject authority. So that's the first charge they level, and it's a reminder that for the unbeliever, this is the way authority and the world should be structured. The unbeliever rejects God's word, rejects the authority of Scripture, and ultimately rejects God. When a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they submit to the authority of God's word and trust in the gospel and place their faith in the Lord. So the notice that when a person trusts in Christ, the world of the unbeliever is turned upside down. They want to be the authority, not God. And so the gospel has an upsetting effect on an unbelieving world, because that which brought stability, rebellion against God, a rejection of his world of his word, has suddenly been um, reversed in the act of faith in the gospel. The second charge is that in verse 7, and Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. So they charge them with sedition against the emperor. For those of you familiar with the gospel narratives, this was also the charge leveled against our Lord, that he was proclaiming himself to be a rival king. This is a misinterpretation of Paul's teaching concerning the return of Christ and the kingdom, both of which are major emphases of First and Second Thessalonians, and yet they misrepresent Paul's teaching so as to level a charge that would gain a hearing from the Roman authorities. Apparently, the political leaders of Thessalonica didn't believe Their story, because rather than punish anyone or incarcerate anyone, they simply demand a payment of money. But again, notice in verse 8, they stirred up the crowd, and the city authorities heard these things. The word stirred up is going to occur again later in this passage. The bottom line is that it describes the fact that they agitated the people, they got them upset enough about the situation that the city council recognized they needed to do something. So they assigned a bail amount in verse 9, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. So they set an amount of money that Jason had to pay to be released and apparently also the guarantee that the missionaries would leave Thessalonica so that they paid the amount, they were released, and apparently Paul and Silas left Thessalonica immediately. We see that in verse 10. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So that Paul will express his disappointment in 1 Thessalonians when he says, having been taken, literally torn away from you, Satan hindered us. So Paul was not happy about the way this riot resolved itself. And for the moment, the forces of evil succeeded in driving the disciples away from Thessalonica. But the work would continue as a matter of fact, in First Thessalonians, we we find out that the gospel is spreading throughout the entire region through the witness of the Thessalonian church. Okay, any questions about Paul's ministry here in Thessalonica? No, I'm sorry? This kind of summary of what's happening today. Is exactly, exactly. And our challenge is even greater in the sense that we live in a world that, that is implicitly not open to the idea that there's absolute authority, that there is um, one way. Uh, but I think Paul has given us the key, and certainly God in his word has given us the key, to establish a credible basis for faith. And that's in the prophecies fulfilled by our Lord. That's not random. That's not accidental. That's part of the text for a very, very specific reason, so that we can have absolute confidence and we can share boldly, not arrogantly, not in an alienating way, but in a way that is willing to go toe-to-toe with those who are skeptical. Okay, they then go to Berea, some 46 miles and begin a ministry there. A famous verse um, that I'm sure most, if not all of you are familiar with. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Now, notice that the focus is still on the scriptures, but now there's a subtle shift from the speaker to the hearer. And the the, uh, Bereans are called noble-minded for, that is, they were more noble-minded because, number one, they received the word of God. They realized their need. They were ready to hear. They were open to regarding its truthfulness, and they regarded it as true, and they responded in faith. So to be noble-minded is basically to be humble-minded, to be open to the fact that this is indeed God's Word. I need it, I believe it, and I trust it. So that notice that For those of you who have taught, whether it's a Sunday school class or your own families, there's nothing more precious than these kind of hearers. Those who want to hear the word are eager to receive it and to respond in faith to it. Notice that the text says they had great eagerness. They couldn't wait to study the word of God and even adjusted their... their schedules in order to do it. They met daily. And again, I can't thank you guys enough for coming out early on a Thursday morning to do this. If Iron to Iron weren't such a good name for this group, Bereans would be a good name for it because it means a group of individuals who are eager to study the Word, who are willing to adjust their schedules, who are hungry to study, to learn, and to apply the Scriptures. Notice that the text says they examined the Scriptures. Again, a word study means that they formed convictions based on the Word of God on the basis of carefully studying the text and comparing Scripture with Scripture. So these weren't individuals who just swallowed what they were taught. They studied the text. They examined the Scriptures. They developed inward convictions that meant, I may have been taught this by another person, but now this is mine. I've taken ownership that this is indeed what the text is teaching. And that's my prayer, that's my goal for each and every one of us. So we move beyond a superficial acquaintance with the Scriptures that simply absorbs what others tell us to a firsthand familiarity with the Word of God. Now, we're out of time, but notice once again that there are many who believe and shortly after within 3 weeks antagonists arrive from Philippi who stir up trouble and Paul and Barnabas leave and Borea and travel about 196 miles to Athens, and that's where our study will find us next time. Thank you for your attentiveness. It's all yours. Oh, you want me to pray? All right. Our Father, we do thank you for your word, the precious treasure that it is. May we hide your word in our heart. May we share our faith as you open opportunity. May we be completely confident in its message and faithful in living a life in keeping with his teaching. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.